what our hearts long for to be overcome by your presence Lord. Holy Spirit you are welcome here come flood this place and fill the atmosphere your glory God is what our hearts long for to be overcome by your presence Lord. Father again we give this time to you pray that you would open our eyes and fill our hearts with your word and understanding of your word that we'd be honest with ourselves before you of what we're convicted about, of what you're asking us to change in our lives or asking us to do in obedience to you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're in Esther 2, the end of Esther 2, and going through all of chapter 3. Like I said, at this conference that I was at, it was just a beautiful thing. It was affirming in some ways. It was encouraging in, in others. And uh, it also gave me a little bit more uh, hope that I'll convert you to the, to the flip-flop club. The first time I had visited Calvary Coast Mesa, that's where the conference was at, was a couple of years ago. And I was actually, I, I got in there and, and was, felt very... Um, out of place, uh, being in the Calvary Chapel movement, I you know I thought I was pretty safe in in, in what I was wearing, my my jeans, my shirt, and flip flops, and you know I thought I was championing the tradition by having that be my chosen attire for us here at Calvary. Uh, but so I, a couple of years ago, I get to Costa Mesa, and and all the pastors are in three piece suits. And they got their shoes shined, and they got their you know, jackets buttoned and looked around, you know, tried to find the, the, the name of the church on the bulletin to make sure I was in the right place. After all I'd heard, it, it felt very, it was very shocking. Uh, anyway, as comforted this last time this week when I went, and uh, this time somebody had kind of put the bug in my ear and they said, well, you better wear your best flip-flops at least. Uh, and so as I was driving, I was driving in late, and, and the freight was going to miss the first session. And so uh, at one of the gas stops I made, I quickly jumped into jeans and, and put a nicer shirt on just in case, you know. And uh, so that took a little extra time, and I get there, and everyone's in shorts and T-shirts and just hanging out. So uh, there's no real moral to that story, but just insight, I suppose. Last week, as Pastor Chuck mentioned, we... We discuss freedom, uh, freedom in light of uh, the holiday, but also in light of recent events. And we looked at how, uh, for us as believers, freedom freedom isn't the ability or, or the carte blanche to do as we please, but it's the freedom to do as we should. And so we kind of looked at freedom in a couple different lights. Uh, freedom from, freedom in, and freedom to. So we looked at freedom in, or sorry, freedom from, 
as law, uh, freedom from, uh, from the law of sin and death, from the penalty of sin. Whereas in the old covenant, you had to follow the law and the prescription of the law to the T, and you had to make sacrifices every year, and you had to make journeys to the temple, and there were all these prescriptions, all these ways of doing things. And um, Paul said it was, it's always, the law was always meant as a tutor to the gospel, as a tutor to understanding the nature of God, of understanding the depravity of man, the, the sinful nature uh, that we are born with. And so when we find in light of the law that we can't match up, that we can't live up to it on our own, it ought to point us to Christ. It ought to point us to, to the realization that we can't do it on our own. And so Christ came to set us free from that old covenant, from the penalty of sin, from our old man. We looked at how we have freedom in then to live in the spirit, to live in the law of liberty, to live uh, in love and service to others. How when we're non-believers, how we're, when we are under that old covenant, under that sin nature, that really even love and, and service to others is done in a selfish way, is done in a way that, that won't come close to the true fulfillment that Christ intended, that God intended for us in those things. There's a piece missing. There's an element that, that we can never fully understand or fully live out without being a believer, without um, living in the new covenant. Then we looked at freedom too, uh, freedom to live the life that we were meant to live, freedom to live uh, out the purpose that God designed and intended us for. Also freedom to eventually approach the throne of God. And this world would want to change these meanings, the meanings of, of words that have stood for centuries, for millennia, to change what it means to be free, to change what it means to love, to change what it means to be married even. And as Christians, maybe our response isn't always to be outward or, or, or in a protesting way, but certainly ought to be in how we live. And if God has given us these freedoms, given us and charged us with these things, we, we, we ought to make sure that we are exemplifying it to others. Esther, as we know, is a historical narrative. It was written to, one, uh, give the historical perspective, the historical uh, start to the Jewish festival of Purim. It was also written, as we can see, as we've uh, been finding out, to illustrate, to, to exemplify the providence of God throughout history, and specifically in the book of Esther. It gives hope for us today, uh, an affirmation for, for the people living in, in, in the new covenant, just as it would have for the people, for the Jewish people, who lived in the diaspora, who were spread out, who were had been brought captive and forced out of their homeland. We see Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and some of the other prophets affirming that God's covenant still was valid, that God was still the God of Israel, that God would fulfill his promises to them. The cry of the people in this diaspora, the cry of the people as 
they sat in captivity was, is, is God still there? Is his covenant still in effect? Is, does he still care about us? Are we still his people? And very, it very much was a, an identity crisis. Last week, we kind of looked at that in, in previous weeks, actually, how the author kind of carefully illustrates and, and, and narrates this story and how he draws out the fact that we don't know for sure how Mordecai and Esther were living uh, it's almost a safe presumption that they weren't following Jewish custom and they weren't following kosher and, and, and they uh, were not fully upholding their tradition and their the culture of their people uh, religiously or otherwise. So we know that they weren't known as Jews, at least not publicly. And there's almost a sense of, of seeing Esther as, as kind of having one foot uh, in one identity and another foot um, and another identity. One way to look at it or apply it is, is one foot in the world and one foot uh, in the things of God. It, the author gives us, takes the time to explain her, her name. Her, her Hebrew name is Hadassah and her, her Persian name is Esther. And yet we see her rise from being an orphan child of a captive people to being taken uh, so still not a good situation being forced into the harem of the king uh, and yet being placed in a position of power having favor all the way through for a very specific purpose as we'll see I want to reiterate just kind of as, as a side note just the, the Xerxes was not a good man Ahasuerus as we read in the Bible it's the same same person was not a good man. He uh, was known for being vicious, even to his own people, of being murderous. Um, he was a warring king. People who once had a favor with him, he would turn on a dime if, if they displeased him. And so as we go throughout the book and, and we look at the relationship that Esther has and the favor that she's given, we, we need to keep that in mind, that this is a man who waged war in Greece, who... Um, would cut people in half and put one half of the body on one side and one half of the body on the other and force an army to march through as a reminder of who was in charge. So Esther, in this situation and in, in, in this setting, comes to a position of favor and, and, and is appointed queen. To an enemy of the people of Israel. We pick up in chapter 2, verse 19. We just finished reading that uh, they, she was appointed queen and there was a party thrown and a feast given. And in verse 19, it says, Now when the virgins were gathered the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's state gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. 
and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Uh, verse 19, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, uh, that's been a point of conflict in, in, in interpretation over the years. Even some Greek translations of Esther uh, will just omit that because it just stumps the uh, interpreter. Uh, I don't have anything better to add to that. It's just one of those things we, we don't quite understand. Uh, and I'm okay with saying that I don't know. One thing I was... Um, one thing I appreciate while I was at this conference is we have these pastors who are giving messages to us as, as other fellow pastors. And in the audience, there's, there's pastors who have been in ministry for 50 years, 60 years, for, who have gone and started 10, 15 churches, who uh, pastor mega churches of 5, 10, 15,000, just this, this whole array. Uh, and yet I appreciate the fact that the, the speakers, when they got to a verse like this or got to a point uh, – that they wouldn't force it, that they wouldn't try to put their own spin on it. They, if they, in their honesty and the, the honest um, exposition of the word, they would just say, there's just some things we don't know. And I think that's important to hold, just as a side note, it's an important thing to, to value uh, in a leader, wherever you end up, in, in somebody who, who is leading you in the word of God, that uh, as much as we seek inspiration, as much as we want to be led by the Holy Spirit and, uh, be uh, to rightly divide the word of truth. Um, it doesn't mean we always have the answers. It doesn't mean that the answers we give are always right. Um, and ultimately, there, there's a, a responsibility for us as individual believers to seek the, the Lord on those things. Amen. So Esther's now queen. Mordecai um, has been given sort sort of position in the king's court. As we see, this is actually, even though it's kind of short-lived, it's, it's a pivotal point in the story. We'll get to that in future weeks. So from Mordecai's position of, of a little bit of favor, he's now in the king's court, and he has, uh, he's privy to things that go on, and he catches wind of this plot, this assassination plot. Again, King Ahasuerus was not a good man. The, he would eventually be assassinated by his own um, guards, by his own uh, advisors. I'm sure there probably were other uh, attempts, too. And so Mordecai catches wind of this assassination plot, and he, he tells Esther, who then tells the king uh, in Mordecai's name, and, and the, the plan is thwarted. The two men responsible are put to death, and they are uh, hanged. By the way, just... I had to spend about 10 minutes looking up the, the proper use of hanged and hung and hang. Uh, and so if you ever want to, you know, have a mini grammar lesson, you can contact me after the service. It is. But only in the instances where it, it means to be put to death. That was, that was for free. <laughs> and now I'm lost. Mordecai, you want to come up and join me? <laughs> Mordecai does a valiant thing, a courageous thing for somebody who likely was seen as the very enemy of his people. And I'm not talking about Haman, I'm talking about Hazarus. Somebody who is known for his lascivious living, for his extravagant uh, ways, who had just gone 
nearly bankrupt in a war that he lost in Greece, only to come back and tax his people nearly to death so he could recover uh, and fill up his treasury and continue to live in such a way. Being murderous and torturous to his people on the way. And yet Mordecai, being in the king's court, hearing the plot, realizes what he must do, and so he gives word of, of warning to the king. God's thread of providence seen throughout this book. Chapter 3, verse 1, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. That kingdom being 126, 127 provinces Spanning from India to Ethiopia. So we see here that, that Mordecai warns the king of this plot. Two people in the king's court are put to death. Haman likely rises to his posi position because of that void. The irony being that Haman would become the enemy of the Jews. The enemy of Mordecai. See, Mordecai wasn't thrown a great party. He wasn't given a better position in the kingdom. He was forgotten about, despite his courage, despite his integrity, even. So Haman rises to power. We know that he's an Agagite. It, it, it connects him to King Agag, who, who Saul failed to kill, follow, uh, failed to follow through and obey uh, God's command in his time. We see the Agagites and, and others uh, continue to be a thorn in the flesh, a thorn in the side of, of the people of Israel because of that. In a way, Haman was predisposed to be an enemy of the Jews. We see in this section Mordecai refusing to bow to royal authority. It may, it may not have been... Uh, necessarily a, a religious prohibition to acknowledge the authority as they passed by. It would have been very common. Uh, it's interesting that they mentioned that Hazarus had to command the people to bow to Haman, uh, which gives a sense, as commentators would put it, that, that Haman was not well liked by anybody or and not well respected. I, I think that probably... It's true just by the nature of the story and what we know. So Mordecai's intentions and, and unwillingness to bow are unclear. 
at this point, he does reveal at least that he's a Jew, and that could be very well the reason. We just don't know 100%. It's interesting to me, and the question I would ask Mordecai when we get to heaven is, is why did you tell him you were a Jew? He told Esther not to tell. She lived in the court. She was appointed queen. Uh, I think there's about, I've lost my timeline, but there's about four years after she's appointed king that this is all actually starting to really take place. And so for a number of years at least, plus the rest of their lives, the, 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 their true identity there is, is pretty much hidden. And so in the furnace of the court, in the uh, microscope of being in that position, Mordecai chooses to reveal his identity to people who aren't his friends. The world may never know. So this is the landscape. It, it, Mordecai's refusal to bow infuriates Haman. And Haman, in his response, is not only furious with Mordecai, but chooses also to identify Mordecai with his people and chooses to hate them as well. The point where in his heart he, he wants to wipe them out completely. In reality, we read that and we get it, but if we're honest or if we take a second to look at it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. I mean, how many of you have been mad at somebody? You can raise your hands because it's going to be everybody. Come on. <laughs> I'm sure there's been times where we've been angry at people and we've been so angry to the point that we wouldn't want to admit what we thought or what we wanted to do. But I would guarantee you that there's probably no one in this room who, who maybe we had a murderous heart in one instance, but it wasn't like we looked at that person and then wanted to murder their family, their grandchildren, and, uh, their distant relatives, anyone sharing the same last name, anyone sharing any piece of DNA with them. I think this goes to illustrate the, the attack, the inexplicable hatred toward the Jews throughout history and that we still find today. One thing I understand and one thing I, I value about the Calvary Chapel movement that this church is a part of uh, is the fact that we make a point to stand with our brothers and sisters in Israel. We make a point to, um, in the areas that we can influence, uh, at least still try to support or send support uh, to Israel. And that is both a political and religious thing, but I think it's one that uh, if we're going to bow out of politics, that's not the one to bow out of. Just as the Jewish nation has suffered hatred, has suffered attack for its entire history, now that we as Believers are grafted into the people of God under the new covenant. We shouldn't expect anything less. I can't tell you what it was like coming back from this conference and almost immediately having things thrown at me that just that <laughs> just came out of nowhere. That and you know, eventually I saw it as, as an attack of the enemy trying to kind of steal that joy and steal some of the, those things that have been deposited in me over this past weekend. I mean, in a 24-hour period, our, our car broke down. My, my uh, iPhone glass was cracked, and I kicked the dog. I don't have a dog, but 
No, I love dogs. But Mordecai, in this time, he should have been praised as a hero. He should have been given a higher position. He should have been honored in festivals and holidays made in his name for his heroic act to save the king. And yet he was forgotten, but not only was he forgotten, but then he was hated and targeted for destruction. If this plan had gone through, he would have been the reason why. This plan, can you imagine? I don't, I'll, can you imagine if, 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 if there was one individual other than Hitler who, who was to blame for the Holocaust? I, I mean, that was the, the position that Mordecai was being put into. Somebody who, out of integrity, I think it's safe to assume, warned his enemy king of an assassination plot only to be repaid by the very person who rose to power because of his integrity with hatred. The world is not fair. That's okay. It says that Haman was filled with fury. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. It wasn't enough for him just to lay hands on Mordecai. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. They cast it month after month till the twelfth month which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charged with the king's business, that they may put it in the king's treasuries. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors of all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. 
So Haman approaches the king with this hatred. He eases into the conversation manipulatively, deceitfully, withholding pertinent facts and uh, overemphasizing others and embellishing the truth, manipulating the king into uh, giving him this power and this authority. Notice that he uses the Jewish identity, the Jewish customs against them. One signature of the empire was that in general they would allow the people they conquered and we'd see this also in Roman times, but they would allow, in general, the people they conquered to maintain much of their tradition, much of their identity, at least to some extent. And yet, Haman uses their differentness, uses the fact that they are set apart to identify them and to target them and to instill hatred. So much so that Haman being a wealthy and, and noble, not noble, noble, but nobleman, uh, that he would bribe the king with 10,000 talents of sil silver. 10,000 talents of silver. Uh, it's, it's thought that one talent um, in Old Testament economy, if you will, uh, is the equivalent of 75 pounds of whatever precious metal they're identifying. 75 pounds. I think silver right now is at... Um, no, let's skip... $16 an ounce. So 750,000 pounds, our pounds, of silver equates to somewhere in the range of $180 million. He wanted to wipe them out really badly. The decree written in every language to every province not only in, in the language, but in the script and in the, in the very writing and, and, and being very clear to every part of the kingdom. The decree was to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. And not just the men, which may have been more of a common practice, but the women, children. What's interesting that is, is on the lunar calendar, the Jewish calendar, this decree was for... Um, just prior to the celebration of Passover. We'll come back to that. Just to further illustrate the hatred and, and the just the disconnect and, and, and the evil, this decree goes out, it goes out into the citadel where, where the king is, where the queen is, where Mordecai is in Susa. And uh, once it goes out, the king and Haman have a toast and drink to their accomplishment. And their people, meanwhile, are thrown into confusion in a state of hysteria because of this decree and because of what it will mean. What does all this mean? How do we wrap this up? First, I think we, we very much see and illustrate it, not just in this time, uh, this time of Esther, but I think it really does illustrate the satanic, the enemy forces uh, that have plagued Israel throughout its history. It also, I think, illustrates for us, I don't want to go into it now, but shortly down the road, I want to make sure that we spend some time on spiritual warfare. Um, but if you look at verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from, the hand, from his hand and gave it to Haman. And the, the author puts the full title of Haman at least as we know, Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadoth, the enemy of the Jews. 
giving that signet ring was basically saying, I, I instill in you all power and authority to do anything and everything in my name. And all the provinces and all the lands and all the people. The enemy for too long, if we turn it to a spiritual eye, the enemy for too long has, has, has run wild. In some instances, people of God failing to understand what's at stake. Israel itself, I don't think, fully understood. Saul didn't understand. Saul let King Agag live. Going back to my earlier point, I, I think it's important to make sure that we as a people of God aren't standing on the wrong side of history. We make sure to stand uh, with still the nation of Israel. And furthermore, stand with each other, the, the persecuted church, uh, the bodies of believers, the, 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 the groups of believers in other nations that don't have the freedoms we do. But if the attack, the rise again and again of enemies who would seek to wipe out the nation of Israel time and time again, not just Hitler, not just Xerxes, if that enemy and that attack and that effort is, is woven throughout their history, so is the thread of the providence of God in each instance. The miraculous working of God to orchestrate things in his sovereignty to make sure that there was always a remnant, that there was always a people to remain, that there was always an example of his steadfastness, that of his commitment to them in their covenant. And that's a powerful thing in, in, in the New Testament time in the church age that we are in to realize that just as much as we see the enemy rise, whether we see it as ISIS, whether we see it as politicians, whether we see it as our fellow neighbor, that right or wrong, but that God will be there, that God will work, that God will protect, that God will fulfill his promises to us. Amen. Come on. <laughs> hatred toward God, hatred toward the people of God, which we now are, is not a novel thing. We need to realize that this world, unbelieving world, lives under the bondage of sin and death. Lives under the influence of the enemy of God. Last week we looked at that. We looked at what freedom is. And despite a world that thinks they are free and thinks that they are doing things in the name of freedom, really they are doing things under the control of an evil force. That would not only seek to destroy the people of God, but even destroy them. If we look at the, quote, new freedoms and, and the, the things that are being pushed and forced into the realm of acceptableness, they are things that, that bring self-destruction. Even if you want to take it away from recent events, even, you know, think about drugs and marijuana and the legalization of, of, of all kinds of things. This world is focused on the ability, the, quote, freedom to please themselves and do as they should, and, and, and it only leads to destruction. 
we very much live in a time where, where this threat may be not hitting home yet, but we have to be vigilant. We have to be prayerful. We have to understand what's at stake. One estimate of the 19th century, or the 20th century, excuse me, is that 300,000 Christians a year were martyred. That's one every 1.75 minutes. 105 seconds. Even if you say, okay, that number is just way too big, cut it in half. And that's still one Christian murdered every three plus minutes. That's the world we live in. That's the, quote, freedom that people living in bondage and under the, the, the influence of the enemy want to exercise. And I'm not saying all this for us to be afraid. But we need to be aware. And we need to understand and, and continue to remind ourselves in the midst of whatever may come our way that our God is greater. That when you achieve, or maybe not achieve, but when, when a, a testimony comes about in your life of God's grace or uh, something miraculous or supernatural happens, that uh, when you get attacked, and you will get attacked, it's not a, a commentary on what just happened, except that it means that the enemy is not happy. And so just as you receive God's blessings or re you receive that, that miracle in your life or that testimony of God working in your life, you, 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 you continue to move through that, that attack as well. And you hold on to the God, the God of glory, the God who saw fit to keep his people from generation to generation to generation. I think also in, in this and similar to what we've been discussing, there's an idea here that I want to highlight of, of uh, physical or political freedom uh, versus or in light of spiritual freedom. I think physical or political freedom, if treated properly, ought to enhance our understanding of spiritual freedom. Not always, but in some ways. Where I see this as being drawn out is a hazardous told Haman to do, quote, do with them as it seems good to you. That's akin to today's terrible advice to, to follow your heart or to do what seems right for you, humanism. We've talked about this before. You can't give worse advice. <laughs> If that's the advice you've been given or you have been giving, don't don't come under condemnation, but just just lose it from your your counseling vocabulary. The Bible says that the heart of man is what. So to follow your wicked heart, what do we think is going to lead to? Haman followed his heart. He did what was right in his eyes. He sought to annihilate an entire people, but not only entire people, but the people of God, who in their history had demonstrated the one true God 
from generation to generation, miracle after miracle after miracle. So much so that the world knew before they came. That's who God had proven himself to. And yet in face in the face of that, despite that, the hatred in his soul, the wickedness of his heart still wanted to confront and wipe them out. I don't know about you, but if I'm on an island and I'm a one-man country, there is no way I'm declaring war against the United States. Maybe not a great illustration, but Haman, so hatefully following his heart, wanted to take on the one true God of Israel. He wasn't taking on his people. He was making a statement of his day against the God of this universe. And that's also the wrong side of history. If our physical and political freedom don't enrich our understanding of our spiritual freedom, it really does us no good. Living in America to do as we please, if it doesn't lead to a greater understanding of what's at stake and what's at play in the spiritual realm, if it doesn't lead to a greater understanding of the freedom that God has given us, honestly, it does us no good. Because even within that freedom, if we, through capitalism, build up our mansions and build up our wealth and build up our luxuries, it's all going to burn. And it will have had nothing to do with the spiritual inheritance that we are called to build. We so desperately in this nation, even as Christians in our current culture, want to hold on to these freedoms. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying we shouldn't seek influence and seek to stymie the tide that is shifting. But if we lose sight of the spiritual freedom that we've been given as believers, it's worthless. We need to stand in the freedom we've given. We need to stand and champion the freedom from sin and from death, from bondage, from the influence of the enemy. See, symbolically and chronologically, the festival, the feast that would come out of this in the Jewish tradition, the Purim, leads to Passover. Purim signifying, representing political and physical freedom to the Jewish nation. Prefacing Passover, signifying, representing the freedom, the salvation, spiritually, of the people of God. Do we see that? Do we see that order? See, the pattern of Israel was a history of rebellion against God and captivity or judgment, repentance, restoration, rebellion against God, captivity. <laughs> and despite Israel's failure to fulfill God's covenant, God still fulfilled his side of the deal. And he's continued to do so ever since. Esther, as we know, illustrates the providence of God, the ability of God in his sovereignty to work among the hearts, evil and good, of 
uh, people to work even through the evil intentions of man to achieve his purpose, to illustrate his story, to illustrate his redemptive desire for the world. Haman tried to pay and tried to buy and achieve his mission with blood money, $180 million, which would have been basically you could have owned if it existed the USA with that amount of money, and yet it achieved him nothing but to be hanged on a gallow. Jesus, on the other hand, paid down a price with his blood for us and achieved his mission. Haman was known as the enemy of the Jews. Jesus came for us to be the way, the truth, and the life. King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, was known as Shah Hanshah, king of kings. Yet he was assassinated by his own people. Jesus came to die on a cross as our redeemer for our sins once for all and is the true king of kings. That's the reality. That's the story. That's God's providence at work not just for Israel, but for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that you would work through it and in it in our hearts, or that you would communicate directly by your Holy Spirit where my words have failed. Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. Help us to hold on to what you're doing in our hearts. Help us to beware of the times and the seasons we're in, help us to be on guard, to be watchful, prayerful, to uh, begin to more deeply understand what it means to be in a state of spiritual warfare. But Lord, all along knowing and being comforted by and being confident in that you are the king of kings, that you paid the price for our ransom. That you in your providence, in your sovereignty, will work through the heart of man and still build your kingdom. We want to be a part of that. We want to be building your kingdom day by day. Let's close in a song of worship. Would you stand? <laughs>